Have you ever been invited to a formal occasion and you go, Oh no, what am I going to wear? Well, that's because you understand that it is only right to be rightly dressed. The last thing you want is to turn up only to be turned away because you didn't dress right. Right? Hi, this is Hansen from Archippus Awakening, a ministry dedicated to the awakening of the saints to know and fulfill our God-given kingdom assignments. And this is what Kingdom 101 is all about. We revisit kingdom fundamentals to know Jesus our King, to embrace His kingdom that we may receive and move on kingdom assignments according to His kingdom ways. In some establishments, clubs or restaurants, a certain dress code is required. If we want to gain entry to these places, we abide by the dress code. Similarly, for some functions, the host may state a dress code befitting for that occasion. To honour the host, we abide by that dress code. To disregard or to ignore the dress code would be to dishonour the host. But what about the Kingdom of God? Is there a dress code that we should be aware of? In case you're wondering, this is not a teaching about Christian fashion trends. It's about the parable of the wedding feast, where a certain dress code was expected. While we know it's not about physical, outward appearances, we must discern the point of this parable as it pertains to what constitutes being rightly attired, to be rightly dressed for the Lord. Let's read the parable found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fat cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but a few are chosen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, will you give us understanding. Lord Jesus, teach us the ways of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are still in the section where Jesus shared three parables, his collective response to the religious leaders' rejection of his authority. 
In the parable of the two sons, it was a rejection of instruction. In the parable of the wicked vine dresses, a rejection of inspection. And here, in the parable of the wedding feast, a rejection of invitation. We will begin by making two important observations or points. All three parables are about two groups of people. I know that the tendency is to presume that the two groups are simply Israel and the church. Well, this is not necessarily wrong, but it can be potentially deceptive. And it can make us think that Israel missed it entirely, and we, the church, we're all okay. That it was much harder for Israel, but now it is easier for the church. Well, not exactly. All three parables are simple stories that highlight the contrast and the response of two groups or two types of people. In the parable of the two sons, the two sons represent either a group who obeys or a group that disobeys, depending on whether you accept or reject that instruction. In the parable of the vine dresses, two groups again, one accountable, another who refuses to be accountable. If you accept the inspection, it was then accountability and that of fruitfulness. If you reject it, then you refuse that accountability or you just have no fruit, wrong fruit or bad fruit to account for. In this parable of the wedding feast, it's about two groups again. One that accepts the invitation and another that rejects the invitation. Now this is applicable to everyone, everyone who consider themselves people of the kingdom both then and now. Well, then it was the people of Israel as the kingdom community, but now it is the ecclesia or the church of Jesus Christ, his kingdom community. The key is to discern which of the two groups best describes you. Secondly, we will look at the significance of the wedding feast as well as the invitation. The wedding feast is a picture of messianic fellowship at the consummation of the kingdom of God. Jesus made this phrase before, talking about the sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was talking about that great consummation when all of God's kingdom people will come together. They will come from the east, the west, the north, and the south, and they will sit down in the kingdom of God, mentioned in Luke chapter 13 verse 29. Jesus talks also about a great supper, and this was in response to the remark, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. So in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24, a somewhat similar parable, similar to this wedding feast parable. Then again in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, it is recorded about the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, the significance of this event, the wedding feast, would help us determine the significance of the invitation. And then, the significance then of the accepting or the rejection of such an invitation. Clearly, it's not just any old event, but a very, very important one. It is about entry into the fullness of the kingdom of God to have eternal fellowship with God and His people. This is not just any invitation, but an extremely important one. Well, if the invitation is rejected, 
there is a consequence. Well, if the invitation is accepted, there is a condition. Let's jump in and look at both groups and responses more carefully. Group 1, those who rejected the invitation. In this section, we will consider the invitation itself, the reasons for rejecting the invitation, and the consequence of rejecting such an invitation. Let's look at the invitation first. The king sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. Did you notice that? The servants were to invite those who have been invited. The word call can simply mean to invite. And this shows us it's not just one initial invitation. In fact, it's two or even repeated invitations after the initial one. When he sent out other servants, it says the same thing. Tell those who are invited. In other words, I'm inviting you once more. After the initial one, here is a repeated invitation as well as a reminder. This corresponds to the standard oriental practice of issuing an invitation to an event without specifying the exact time until a later date. This is because big events and feasts require time and preparation, and it's difficult to determine that exact time of completion or readiness. So the first invitation is to book the guests, who, as they respond, it was positive. Now, there's a second invitation or a repeated one to inform them that now everything is ready with the timings and the details for them to come. This is not unlike the way we invite guests and gather responses these days for our events. And then nearer the date, you send a text or you provide an email with a reminder to make sure that they don't forget that they will turn up. Unfortunately, the standard practice is also allow a percentage of no-shows, right? Either those who cannot make it, they have double booked, they're not well or they forgot, etc. So keep in mind that it's not just one invitation. It is a repeated invitation with reminders. Secondly, what were the reasons given for the rejection of such an invitation or such reminders? Well, we're told there are a few reasons, right? The first is the guys were not willing to come. Not willing. They refused. They were not interested at all. They didn't want to attend such an event. Then the king sends out more servants with reminders and repeated invitations saying, hey guys, it's going to be a great meal. I've got a great program lined up for you. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a great party. I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, fatter cattle, the buffet spread. Oh, it's going to be so wonderful. Will you come? And then the group says, they made light of it. Uh, no big deal, you know, I've been there, done that. I've attended many of these functions, boring, not important, not attractive enough even to consider. The third reason was they went their ways. They did their own things, uh, one to his own farm, another to his own business. They were not willing to be disrupted from their work or they were just busy. Busy, plain, plain busy. I've got things to do. You are not as important to me. Your event may be nice, but my business, my making of money and my other appointments, those things are more important. But going back to work, isn't it funny? We're told it's a wedding dinner. Why do you want to go back to work at night? You know, was it just a plain excuse? 
And this is where we make an interesting discovery. It's not a dinner as we are accustomed to. The Greek word that is used for this event is ariston. It comes from a word that means without boundaries or indefinite. And applied to a meal, it refers then to a meal taken at no particular time, at an uncertain time. Usually it can be in the morning or a little before noon or just after noon. In any case, it was during the workday. No wonder the guests were not willing to go. They had work to do. And given the uncertainty of the timing, they were not going to make any concession for this sort of last minute, now you give me the details, I have to drop everything, I've got to come. So it's not really a wedding dinner as we are used to. This meal is also a light meal. But the king said it is with oxen and fatted cattle. This was not just an uncertain meal at an unexpected time, but it also came with a totally unexpected menu, a great offering. And that's why it's called a parable. It's got some of these items exaggerated for effect and to make a point. Well, in a group, the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. Put it another way, go away, stop bothering me. Stop calling me, I'm giving you a missed call right now. You're emailing me again, I'm going to unsubscribe. And this is a reference, obviously, to the prophetic voices and the reminders that God would give to His people over and over again. Is it the same today? I think we can say yes. Stop bugging me with this end days kind of thing, I've got to be ready. Stop bugging me with this Archippus Awakening message to wake up, to be aligned, to be assigned. I'm going to unsubscribe from your mailing list. Many reasons or excuses. <laughs> well, let's look at the rejection now comes with a consequence. When the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers who killed the servants and burned up their city. If you reject the messengers of the king, the servants of the king, what you're doing is that you are rejecting the king. So to reject the invitation that these would be carrying, likewise, you are rejecting the king. In fact, you dishonor the king by saying, I'm not interested, I don't want to come, stop bothering me. This phrase burned up the city, destroyed the murderers. Well, possibly it was a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem that was to come. But generally, it would be a picture of judgment of those who reject. And here's the point. Those who reject God will be rejected by Him and they will be judged. They will be removed and they will be dealt with. It goes on and it says that the king considered that those who were invited were not worthy. Now, this is not to mean that they were even worthy in the first place. By inviting them, the king honored them with his favor. It was by his grace. In that case, he rendered them worthy, but only by his grace. But when you reject, by not responding in a worthy manner to such an invitation, this group, the final rejection of that invitation would render them unworthy or undeserving. So let's summarize. The invitation is not just one initial invitation, but repeated invitations and reminders. 
The reasons for rejection, I'm sure many of us can identify with such of these responses and perhaps we have even used them in our own time. Now, are these responses or these excuses? Are they really reasons that we can give? And the consequence of rejection, you're not just struck off the invitation list, never to be invited again. Well, you're totally destroyed, removed, judged, and dealt with. Group two, those who accepted the invitation. Having considered those who reject the invitation, we will look at those who accept the invitation. So the king says to his servants, wedding is ready, those who are invited, not worthy anymore. Now therefore go into the highways, and as many as you can find, invite to the wedding. So the servants go out, and they gather together all they found, both bad and good. And the hall was filled with guests. See, the invitation is given to all, to everyone, and to be drawn from everywhere. And not just the good ones, but both bad and good. And it's not that the good were more deserving. They were all not worthy, and the king was the one that invites them all by grace. And in view of the urgency, right, the wedding is ready, the meal is ready, everything is prepared. Now there's no longer two invitations. It's like it's now or never, you, you just accept, or this is the final call. Many, many were invited, all included. But we can presume that not necessarily all accepted. Some may still have rejected this invitation. But our focus here is on those who accepted. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. So can we say that all who accepted, feasted, and lived happily ever after? I'd like to end here, but Jesus doesn't stop here. The parable or the story hasn't finished yet. We mustn't miss the twist in the next two verses, Matthew 22, verses 11 and 12, because it contains a very, very important point. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now let's remember, the focus in this section is on those who accepted the invitation. And by implication, they knew the dress code. And all of them came with the proper wedding garments, which was the expectation. See, they dressed right, and they were rightly dressed. But what is this wedding garment? Simply, it refers to clean garments as opposed to dirty or soiled ones. To come to a wedding in a soiled garment would have been inappropriate and insulted the host. But also the host would have provided wedding garments to guests at the door. This demonstrated the wealth and the generosity of the host. And especially helpful for those who do not have such proper clothing or could not afford such garments. It was also very helpful for those rushing from work from the field where their clothes would have been dirty. So this man, he turns up, invited to the wedding, which he accepts. He comes, and he's found without the wedding garment. And we are told that he was speechless when the king confronted him and asked him, how in the world did you come in? Who let you in? He was speechless. And this is because he knew the dress code. He had nothing to say. 
he ignored the dress code. He disregarded it. So even worse, there's nothing to complain, nothing to give as a reply. He knew what was expected, but did not meet the condition. And even if he did not have time to get a proper garment, he didn't even bother to put on what the host provided. He had absolutely no excuse, nothing to say. And this is where we see how acceptance becomes rejection. The king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Given the last-minute invitation and response, it seemed rather harsh for the king to throw the man out. But therein lies the main point of the parable. The man knew the dress code. He knew the condition. He knew the consequence. Acceptance comes with a condition. Those who accept must dress rightly by being rightly dressed. If not, you face the consequence. And that acceptance will result in a rejection. This rejection is really from the kingdom of God. If the feast represents the messianic fellowship in the fullness of the kingdom, then to be rejected means to be removed, to be cast out from such a kingdom fellowship. Now take note, this is not the first time that Jesus warned that sons of the kingdom could be cast out. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In a commentary, Craig Keener writes, Matthew leaves no doubt as to the interpretation. The wedding garment signifies repentance. And just as most of the Jewish leaders were unprepared at Jesus' first coming, some professing disciples of Jesus will be unprepared at his second. Professing Christians who insult God's grace by presuming on it without truly honouring his son will be banished to outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. As in verse 14, many are called or invited with a message of repentance, but only those who respond worthily will share the inheritance of the chosen covenant people. Let's be clear that it's not just about accepting the invitation, but also accepting and abiding by the conditions of the dress code. Either we meet this condition or we face the consequence. Two groups of people, those who reject God's invitation to the Messianic feast and those who accept. If you are a believer of Jesus Christ, it is easy to presume that you have accepted that invitation, that there's nothing else required of you other than to turn up for the party. Well, this parable challenges us to consider more carefully. Number one, don't let acceptance become rejection. Christians may have accepted the first invitation to believe in Jesus. But don't forget that there is a second invitation. Ariston, that kneel at an uncertain time. We don't know when that's going to happen, but we know we are in the last days. 
don't miss or reject that second invitation or those repeated reminders. Don't ignore or disregard. Don't presume. Don't be unwilling or disinterested. Don't be apathetic. Don't be distracted by the cares of this world. Don't go about your own things to run your own business. Do not treat it lightly and do not reject even the prophetic voices that the Lord is gracious to send our way. If you want to accept, then accept all the way. Acceptance can become rejection if you are not rightly dressed and rejection brings with it a consequence of judgment. Number two, honour the dress code. Firstly, notice that God provides the right dress. Our righteousness are like filthy rags. We are clothed in sin. However well we try to hide or to cover up, no one can stand righteous before a holy God. Thankfully, when we accept and when we believe in and through Jesus Christ, we are clothed with God's righteousness. Isaiah 61 verse 10 tells us, we have been given garments of salvation, robes of righteousness. And this garment is provided by God himself, the host of the feast. And this is done by grace, through faith. We don't deserve this, but because we believe and we've been invited and we have accepted that, we are made righteous in Christ. Secondly, we put on what God provides. We have to put on what God has provided to us and for us in and through Christ. No one is going to do it for us. And this simply means all that we have received in Christ, we are to live it out. In New Testament language, we are to put on Christ, to grow in righteousness, to do righteous works, to bear fruit worthy of repentance. All these would bring honour to God and to Jesus our King. We are to walk worthy, to live worthy of the call, the invitation which we have accepted. We must put on what God has provided. Let me give you some examples. Isaiah 61 verse 10 tells us we have been given garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. Put it on. We have been made righteous so that we can live righteous. We can't say, I have a robe of righteousness and keep sinning. Because we are told and reminded that whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Now, we don't practice righteousness to get our own righteousness. We have been provided with that ability, with that righteousness in Christ. As we put this on, we live out righteousness and we do righteous works. So stop sinning. Stop living your own way. We have been provided the garment of salvation. Let's put it on. Let's remember that those who are born again in Christ do not sin, but live righteously. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 3 also tells us we've been given garments of praise in replacement of the spirit of heaviness. So put it on. We've been provided this garment of praise. Put it on. Stop moping. Stop griping. Stop complaining. Stop getting depressed. Stop getting anxious. Now, we're not saying that people don't struggle with these things. Of course they do. But let's align with what the Lord has provided for us. 
Let's believe and appropriate every promise that we have as in yes and amen in Christ. If you need help, find help. Walk with Christians. Move with kingdom-minded people. Rejoice in the Lord. Put on the garment of praise. Put on joy. Put on all that we have that God has provided. That the joy of the Lord may be our strength. Let's go on. Put on the new man. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, we have been told to put on the new man in Christ. Now, how do we do this? By being renewed in the spirit of the mind and of knowledge. You've got to know who you are right now and what you have in and through Jesus Christ. Put it on. No point saying that we've been given, I'm this, I'm that, but you don't wear it well and you don't live it out. In case this sounds a little bit hard to understand, Paul makes it even clearer in Colossians chapter 3 in the next verses 12 to 14. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, see that? Put on this new man, wear it on, put on tender mercies, put on kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Put it on. Verse 14, But above all these things, put on love. And you can't have love if you have not been given that love by the Lord. The love of God poured out into our hearts. The love of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ. The love of God poured in, flowing in, that you have experienced that you can give out that same love. Put on love. You see, what God has provided, we must put on. One last example. Put on the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, as well as Romans chapter 13, verse 12, referring to it as the armor of light. What is this armor? Is it some superstitious thing where you stand in front of the mirror and say, I put this on and I put that on? No. It's that you know what has been given to you, the helmet of salvation. Now, live out that salvation. Put it on. Breastplate of righteousness, as we've already said, live out that righteousness. What's the belt of truth? Put it on, right? That you have now truth in Jesus Christ. That the church is to be the pillar of the truth. Stand for truth. Live it out. Put it on. Shoes with the gospel of peace. And peace is shalom that anchors you and grounds you and gives you right foot foundation that you will not be shaky. That's the good news that we have. Put it on. Put it on. Hold high the shield of faith. There we go right? That we have been given faith that we can believe and live out in faithfulness. Put it on, lift it high so that we can quench the fiery darts of the enemy. And use the sword of the Spirit. We have been given this, the living word in Jesus Christ, even the written word of Scripture that is God-breathed by the Holy Spirit. Put it on, right? Get to know it, live it out, meditate on it, and practice it and obey it. Put it on. This is how you wait to spiritual warfare. You don't just stand there and, and, and repeat all these statements or these pieces of the armor and think that everything is okay and you still live in sin. It doesn't work that way. Put it on. We are to put on what God has already provided. 
if you want to phrase it in another way, live out the Christ life because we have been given everything that's needed for godliness in Christ. What's the dress code? One word, Jesus. <laughs> Put on Christ. Put on Jesus. Dress like Jesus. Look like Jesus. Become like Jesus. Walk and talk like Jesus. Number three, beware of easy Christianity. The king asked a very interesting question. How did you get in? Who let you in? And this was addressed to the one who accepted the invitation but was not rightly dressed. Something that this refers to unbelievers. Now, it's not really possible. The unbelievers have not accepted that invitation. I think it refers to believers who have believed into wrong teachings and have wrong presumptions. They turn up thinking that they're okay. And so, my friends, beware. Beware of one-sided preaching that only promises nice things. Nice, cushy preaching that tells us that nothing is required of us. Just come as you are and stay as you are. That's not correct. Oh, just believe and you are righteous. There's nothing else to bother about. That's not accurate. You are already dressed and clothed by grace. Hallelujah. Sounds right. And it is in one part. But you notice Paul was very careful that he did not receive God's grace in vain. Once again, what God provides, we put on. Don't receive the garments by grace in vain. We have to put it on. We have to practice it and we have to live it out. What God has given by grace in Christ, we live out by grace in Christ and through Christ. Who let you in? The king asked. Who was the one who gave you these ideas that you can just turn up and everything is going to be okay? When I read this, I'm reminded that as a teacher, as a leader, as a preacher, I carry a very heavy responsibility. I may be trying to hold the door open for everyone and saying, just come, 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 no problem, you know, everything is going to be cool. I'm reminded once more, preach the word. Preach the word rightly and without compromise. Because as leaders, teachers, preachers, we will be judged more strictly. We have to remind everyone, as much as we love the blessings, we must heed the warnings. And in this parable is a very clear warning. We don't have to try to make the good news sound gooder or better or more attractive. Discipleship is costly. And if disciples want to become like the Master, disciples will follow everything about the Master, even wanting to dress as the Master dressed, so that we can look as much as him, like Him as possible. Please be careful, friends. God is not mocked. You may fool some, but you cannot fool God. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap of the flesh. If you practice lawlessness, if you do not do the Father's will, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, reminds us that Jesus will say to these people, I never knew you. I never knew you. So friends, be careful of easy Christianity. Don't try to justify or rationalize into things where the scripture does not teach. In fact, we must be careful to stay true 
to all the Lord is wanting to say to us. Number four, no excuses. No excuses. No one can give any excuse. There are many other dress code passages that we see and find in Revelation. And we are warned not to turn up in soiled garments or be found naked. Allow me to give you some examples here. Jesus warned the church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea. In Revelation 3 verse 4, he speaks of people inside us, those who have not defiled their garments. And these walk and are found worthy. If you flip it, then there are many who have defiled their garments. What has been provided? Maybe they disregard it. They push it aside. They don't want to wear it. They continue to live in unrighteousness and they will not be considered worthy. In Revelations 3, 17 to 18, Jesus warns the church in Laodicea. And they think that they are well clothed. In Laodicea, they had a very strong trade of garments and clothing and cloths. But Jesus said, you are naked. You think you're dressed very well. You're naked. Come buy from me. I counsel you. Come and get white garments from me all over again, that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Now, this is the church. They were believers. They had accepted. But if you want to step into that wedding feast, into the fullness of the kingdom, your dress code must be correct. The warning is also generally issued to all believers in Revelation 16, verse 15. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And finally, the church, as the bride or the wife of the son, is clothed in white linen as opposed to a soiled garment, representing what? The righteous acts of the saints. Notice it's not just righteousness imputed. It is the acts that flows out of the imputation of righteousness. Revelations chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This is the church. We've already received the garments of salvation and of the robes of righteousness and yet it says that the church must make herself ready and come with the right dress code. Do we say it perfectly? Do we do it perfectly? I'm sure not at all. But it is by His grace that when He finally sees us, He counts us worthy and arrays us in clean and bright garments that only He can bring out of us fully a glorious, glorious bride. When Christ returns, His army will return with Him, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We see that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 14. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Thank God for what he has provided to all of us who believe in and through Jesus Christ. But we are expected to put on what he has provided. Our acts, our words, our lives, our conduct 
become an expression of what we have accepted and an indication of how worthy we are in Christ to partake in the Messianic feast and fellowship. No excuses at all. Jesus has stated everything so clearly. We cannot blame anyone. We can't give any excuse. When we stand before the King, we cannot claim ignorance that we didn't know the dress code no one told us. We either stand rightly dressed to give account, or we will be exposed and speechless before Him. Let's close with the last verse, Matthew 22, verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, many are invited. In fact, all, all, it just means all are invited. Those who accept this invitation, praise the Lord. However, we must be careful that this acceptance can turn into rejection if we are not careful. Only those who honour the dress code are finally chosen. God has already provided everything we need in Christ. And what God has provided, we are to put on. Don't leave it hanging in the theological or doctrinal wardrobe. Don't just wear it on Sunday. Put it on. Put on Christ. Dress right and live right for Jesus. In the military, right dressing is also a term that is used to mean be aligned with the marker on the right or with the right marker, the right reference point. The religious leaders rejected Jesus' authority and refused to align with him. We who have accepted his authority must also accept and align with all that he requires of us. All three parables in this section involve sons and all point to Jesus, the Son of God. In the parable of the two sons, Jesus serves as the example of an obedient son. In the parable of the wicked vine dresses, Jesus is the son who becomes the cornerstone. In the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus is the son, the bridegroom that the king threw the wedding feast for. As sons and daughters of the kingdom, let us be rightly aligned with Jesus the Christ, the example son. Let us be obedient, be accountable, be ready. Let us be rightly dressed for the messianic feast and fellowship. Dress right. See you at a party. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you always for teaching us. Thank you, Lord, for showing us your word so clearly laid out for us. The Holy Spirit, bring understanding, bring conviction. And Lord, help us, Lord, to put on what God has already provided through you for us all. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining me for another Kingdom 101 teaching. For past teachings, visit our website kingdom101.archipusawakening.org. Until the next time, this is Hanson signing off. Stay awakened, aligned, and assigned. God bless you.